wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco.
just his labor and love. And what we got is uh, Etta Interrupted. Let's play the rest of Etta here. Hey, you may call me Zimmy. You may call me EJ. 
was Eddie James, of course, leading off our show. This is the Labor and Love Show. Every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., we broadcast live and we bring you news, commentary, opinion, interviews, labor history by, for, and about working people. And as we always tell you, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is the bee coming at you from Mutiny Radio. We're located at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the Mission District. 21st and Florida is the... Uh, the cross street. So what do we got today on labor and love? Well, among other things, we're going to cover the life and work of a great labor leader and the controversy that recently has been stirring around uh, Cesar Chavez and his work. Um, minimum wage in California and now New York is uh, raised to twenty to fifteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty two for six years. Gotta wait for that. We've got some news about the Chicago teachers and as always we've got our regular features. Labor news from the Workers Independent Network. Radio Labor's Worldwide Labor Report. But um, right now, let's play some music. Etta James let us off. And here's uh, Natalie Maines.
Okay, well, never a dull moment here at uh, Labor and Love. Looks like all of a sudden my music just quit on me. We were listening to Not Ready to Make Nice by the Dixie Chicks. Uh, and I want to play some music that honors the work of Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez was born in Yuma, Arizona. Um, although now, if you go back to Yuma, Arizona, and you look for some kind of a monument to Cesar Chavez and his work, uh, you'll be out of luck. Uh, we went to Yuma, Arizona a few years ago and actually went to, to look for a Cesar Chavez museum and see if we could uh, check out how, you know, his hometown honors this, this very important, this favorite son. Uh, they don't. That might not be the case now. They might have changed. I don't know. But that's not the case now. Cesar Chavez is not honored in his own land. His family uh, had a, a farm outside of uh, Yuma where they did various, you know, they, they farmed and the farm was taken from them. They lost the farm to a, a larger and a richer I suppose richer um, person who finagled his way into getting the, Ch the Chavez thrown off because they didn't pay taxes. And uh, Cesar had to watch at the age of seven. He had to watch his farm being his, his family's house and the place where he played with his brother Richard and uh, they had to move like so many people at that time they they moved to they had to move to California and they went all around the state of California including places close in here like Half Moon Bay and uh San Jose, there's an area of San Jose called Salsi Puedes. Get out if you can. Uh, he went to several elementary schools. I mean, when I say several, I mean uh, 30. Cesar Chavez attended 30 elementary schools. Uh, and he uh, felt the weight of oppression at that time. At that time in California, um, at that time in California, there was widespread segregation and bias against Latinos, Chicanos, um, 
immigrants from other countries, American-born Chicanos. Uh, there were signs that said, um, no dogs or Mexicans allowed. The pattern of oppression was similar to the oppression against blacks in the South. And yes, there were lynchings, and yes, there were murders. And if you mention the Texas Rangers to... Uh, if you um, mention the Texas Rangers to someone who's a Chicano and aware person, uh, the Texas Rangers are just uh, death squads. They were the people who enforced the uh, repression and the forced labor and enforced the laws passed by white racists. So this, this was not a good time for um, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, People, in other words, whose families had been here before the arrival of uh, the white hordes from the east. Okay, I'm going to try to play. Uh, let's see. Not ready to make nice is what we were hearing. Let's play that. Nothing. We're not getting anything. Thank you. 
Okay, this is the bee coming back at you, um, having problems, technical problems here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and play what I wanted to play, which is um, Fred Glass's History of the Labor Movement in California. And as soon as I'm able to fix my technical problems, we'll be back at you with this day's... Um, today's show. Um, Golden Lands Working Hands was produced by Fred Glass and the members of the uh, Labor and the Schools Committee. Um, I want to say eight, seven, eight years ago. It was nominated for an Oscar and it has played on PBS uh, it includes a history of the labor movement in California uh, with a lot of excellent excellent um, uh, film clips and uh, small scenes that are acted out by people. Herbert Zaguenza of the uh, of Culture Class is one of the people who's featured, and it tells about California labor history from the very beginning uh, of white rule, anyway, around the 1850s. Um, and different movements, including the anti-Chinese movement. But uh, listen up, and while I work on my uh, while I work on my technical problems here, uh, see if we can get it together. Have a show, uh, the show we were going to have. Okay, I'm running into the same problem. Um, see what's coming on here.
looking into the same problem over here to labor and love. Looking at a brief history of redlining, and that's not coming up. Nothing coming through. Okay, a little more now about the history of Cesar Chavez. Um, as I said, he attended more than 30 public schools in California. And uh, in those days, Spanish was seen as a handicap rather than an enhancement. Uh, to a person. So if you spoke Spanish, only Spanish, let's say, and you went to school, um, people would tell you not to speak Spanish. I have friends who have talked about getting their hands hit for speaking Spanish. Uh, the kids would go off, this, as this guy related, the kids would go off in the corner and talk to one another in Spanish. Kids who were neighbors and who knew one another uh, from other connections, maybe church, maybe uh, farm work, maybe proximity, neighborhood where they lived. And the white students would go and tell the teacher that they were speaking Spanish. And all this was done, of course, in the name of righteousness. It's righteous because the kids have to learn English because that's how the world is. Instead of honoring what they knew and using it to teach them more, the point of view at that time was no Spanish. Don't even speak Spanish. This is called submersion education, where you're only allowed to speak the dominant language, the dominant cultural language. And of course, along with that went the whole problem of the Spanish-speaking students. How would they do in a class where only English was spoken and written? Can you imagine? And at the same time, you're being evaluated. So, of course, it, it wasn't a, a good place to be generally. 
And of course there were exceptions. There are always teachers who engage the kids where they're at and who take what they know as a strength instead of a weakness. So this is what, what Chavez and his brothers and sisters and, and people like him, Spanish-speaking people who came to California in the 30s up against. Uh, Chavez worked until he was a teenager and then he got so he hated it so much. The routine of uh, going every day to work He joined the Navy. This was World War II. And uh, he joined the Navy and hated it. He said that uh, in the Navy he encountered uh, more racism. And, you know, he was like a ship's cook. Common job that was given to that was given to people, you know, um, uh, small people. He was a short guy and um, African American and Latinos. Okay, so came back from the Navy. Looked around to see what he was going to do. Was he going to be a farm worker the rest of his life? Met a woman named Helen Chavela, married her, and uh, they started to start the family. For a long time, people at that time could really think about Which was one of the most, one of the richest corporations in the country at that time. A giant agribusiness. And the United Farm Labor. Writer, very well known, campaigner, This strike went on for two years in the political climate at the time. The boss, the Georgios, could claim that a film that the workers made with the help of Hollywood unions was prejudicial against the uh, owners and uh, they got the film banned, sued the union, the union strike eventually lost, but Chavez had noticed that something was going on here, well, you know, what's going on here? 
get to uh, negotiate for your wages? You have people negotiating for you? And this kind of woke him up. So let me stop here and see if we can get our technology going. We got the best of Miles Davis.
Okay, well, we're back. Um, looks like our uh, mechanical problems, technical problems are insoluble at this minute. And I'll, I'll read to you uh, some of the stories that I wanted to cover. This one about Chicago teachers is certainly an important one. Um, Chicago teachers yesterday declared, uh, took a day off, basically. This is um, the Associated Press story. Chicago teachers took to picket lines Friday in a one-day strike they said was aimed at getting lawmakers to adequately fund schools in the nation's third largest district. The others, of course, being uh, L.A., and New York. The walkout closed schools for nearly 400,000 students who had the option of spending the day at contingency sites. Chicago public schools opened at church libraries and school buildings. Among those picketing outside the Priest High School Elementary School was special education teacher Brian Orlinski who said he hoped for the walkout would be a wake-up call for Chicago Governor Rahm Emanuel, Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner, and other lawmakers. There's not enough textbooks, the Spencer Technology Elementary School teacher said. There's not enough technology that's up to date and that's working. Friday's actions could also foreshadow a longer strike over a new labor contract, which by law can't occur for several weeks. The Chicago Teachers Union last went on strike in 2012, shutting down schools for more than a week before reaching an agreement with Emanuel. That contract expired in June, and the negotiations for a new one have been going on for more than a year. Tiffany Stockdale, whose two children attend CPS, said she agrees with the teachers, even if closing the schools is an inconvenience. She said the strike seemed like the only way to get people in power to listen. This is what the teachers have to do, and I think the parents, whether it's hard, whether it's easy, they should support this, Stockdale said. If they have to be out longer, so be it. Emanuel said he agrees more money is needed for schools and particularly for districts like Chicago's that serve poor students. He urged the union to join him and the district in lobbying, lobbying the legislature and rather than closing down the schools, noting that many students depend on the public schools for meals and help. Our kids are paying a price that I don't think is right, Emanuel said. Ah, crocodile tears. Editorial comment. With CPS, which faces a 1.1 budget deficit and billions more in pension debt, already has halted salary increases, imposed three furlough days, and made other cuts to schools. It reached an agreement earlier this year with union leadership on a proposal that included salary increases. 
but a larger union bargaining team rejected it, partially because it required employees to contribute more toward their pensions and health insurance. Illinois entered its 10th month without a state budget on Friday. Outside an elementary school on the south side Friday morning, dozens of teachers waved signs and chanted slogans as cars and trucks, some of them honking in support, zoomed past. Anna Munn, 35, leads an accelerated third grade classroom bursting at the seams with 29 students. I spend a lot of my own money just on books and as an ex-teacher I really uh, want to emphasize this. People look at teachers' salaries and they say, oh, gee, that's great, you know, you get this salary, you get your summer off. Uh, nobody I know <laughs> worked harder than teachers. Teachers care about your kids. I mean, how do you pay a person? You, you pay a person for caring? For taking these kids home with them in their minds? You know, it, it's hard, you know, to think about other stuff when you've got a classroom full of kids. And of course, some of them are going to be having problems. At any rate, Teachers spend a lot of money on supplies, okay? At schools where I worked by November, December, we were already selling candy or selling these little gifts, you know, in booklets uh, to raise money for the school. Book fairs now are a big thing. Uh, they raise money. They raise money for schools. At any rate, the walkout culminated with hundreds of teachers and their supporters marching through downtown streets, snarling rush hour traffic. Three person people were arrested and one person was ticketed during the rally, but he didn't have details on what led to the arrest. So there it is. You know. uh, here's another one, another important one for working people. Largest pay raise for American workers in history. New York and California approve a $15 minimum wage hike. Advocates are, this is uh, democracy now. Advocates are calling it one of the largest pay raises for American workers in the history of the country. About five million workers will see their wages increase substantially after a historic victory for the fight for the Fight for 15 campaign. Now, this is a campaign that's been going on in force for about three years, and and. This is, campaign is the result of organizing by, among others, fast food workers, just workers in general who are marginalized, whose pay is very low. Both the state of California and New York are poised to raise the minimum wage 
to $15 an hour coming years. On Thursday, the California legislature voted to pass the minimum wage incrementally each year, which is $15 an hour by 2022. So there you go. They're not raising the wage to $15 now. It's going to be incremental. As a matter of fact, I went into a uh, restaurant yesterday in Davis. And uh, there was a little note there by the cash register that said, we're going to be raising our prices from 3 to 5% in the near future to cover the... Uh, the raise in salaries. So this is something to watch. I mean, historically, what happens when working people get a raise is that retailers raise their prices. And so the money, the extra money, quote-unquote, that they have is only is only, you know, marginally a raise because it's eaten up right away by increases in prices. Meanwhile, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says he has reached a budget deal that will hike the minimum wage in New York to $15 an hour by the end of 2018. It's remarkable that only about three years ago, this movement started with a single strike of a bunch of McDonald workers in New York City, and now it has spread across the country, says Democracy co-host Juan Gonzalez. And it's going to continue to spread because there's too many Americans who cannot live on the federal minimum wage. So, good news there. I mean, good news in the sense that there are a lot of us who who decry the lack of organized labor, the lack of unions. But workers are finding new structures, new ways to make their feelings felt, you know, uh, make their feelings heard and new structures to organize. Maybe it's not a conventional union where you've got a top-heavy board that really has very little contact with the workers and their work. Maybe uh, things like this, more ad hoc, more uh, solidarity-based, as opposed to organizationally-based. Largest pay raise for American workers in history. As a matter of fact, um, about two weeks ago, 30 uh, union representatives, 30 teachers from uh, elementary to university and officers of uh, 2125, which is the, the CCSF union, and UESF Local 61, the San Francisco Teachers Union, demonstrated in front of the business of one of the uh, accreditation officers that put, uh, basically put CCSF into receivership under a threat of closing. 
So this was a large demonstration, uh, about 30 people, including uh, Tim Paulson of the San Francisco uh, San Francisco Labor Council, um, Bill Shields, Labor Studies uh, had at um, at City College. Lita Blanc, UESF president, several others uh, got arrested, sat in in front of the, house, the uh, office of this lawyer and, and were arrested. So they were able to express themselves, get arrested. We'll see what happens with that case. As a matter of fact, the accreditation group the accreditation group that um, that busted City College in that way which has been going around the state busting Compton campuses in, in working class areas and depressed areas that actually try to serve. Tickets available for our first ever live show in New York City on Saturday, October 10th. We got our We're going to talk about the history the of presidential assassinations with author Brian Young and they are able Anyway, let's finish up. City College, that accreditation group now has been... Uh, say unhired <laughs> their con their contract with the state has been discontinued and uh, the state board of education is going to look for another accreditation this was clearly a case of trying to take over schools that were serving people and um, making it harder for them to run. In other words, they wanted to limit people to what courses they could take, what courses would be offered. Instead of a community-based model, this was more of a uh, um, commercial model. It would cost more the courses you could take and how many times you could take them were closely guarded. In other words, it's turning it into more of a factory. Anyway, let's see if we got our sound back now and see if we can continue with the show. This is Labor and Love, and it's Saturday morning, right around 11 o'clock. Let's see if Miles Davis... predict ongoing patterns of housing discrimination that have persisted since they were created. As we discussed in the previous installment, 
The Homeowners Loan Corporation was a Depression-era government program in the United States that was meant to save the homes of people who had defaulted. They say time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. Okay, we got our son back. Here's Natalie Means. I'm Natalie Maine's not ready to make nice uh, occasion by, of course, by her um, 
by her disdain for President Bush. Um, before a gig in London, right after the invasion of Iraq, which started this whole descent into barbarity. Of course, there's already barbarity going on in Palestine, in occupied Palestine, which some people call Israel. But the United States went and tried to uh, do regime change all over the Middle East. And look what it got us now. We're in a terrible situation where reportedly Defense Department uh, sponsored rebels are fighting against CIA sponsored rebels. in in the Middle East. Uh, wonderful mess. Okay, let's listen to some of our regular uh, our regular here's the Win Weekend Review. And then we'll come on with the uh, Labor Radio. When we can review. Workers Independent News We Can Review. I'm Doug Cunningham. Wisconsin billionaire, Koch brother ally, and Scott Walker political contributor John Menard is breaking labor law at Menard's, a company with more than 300 facilities in 14 states. The NLRB is demanding an end to the labor law violations. OPEIU Local 153 attorney Seth Goldstein filed the numerous unfair labor practice charges against Menard's. The NLRB has reviewed our charges and investigated it, and they they have found that the company has violated several sections of the National Labor Relations Act. The mandatory arbitration provisions are illegal, and they found that in each case, the agreement prevented employees from filing charges with the National Labor Relations Board, and in at least one case, they failed to provide the employees with the opportunity to file class actions in court, which of course is also violative of the National Labor Relations Act. I'm obviously very happy and, and breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief. It's certainly a victory for unions and a victory for all workers. California Teachers Association President Eric Hines reacting to the U.S. Supreme Court 4-4 deadlocked decision Tuesday on the Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association case. That case attacked union fair share fees for all members of the bargaining unit. Hines says this case was an anti-union attack aimed at financially weakening public sector unions. It would have obviously weakened our voices and that was the intent. The Chicago Teachers Union and dozens of allied groups carried out a one-day strike and solidarity actions throughout the city Friday. CTU says it's the most coordinated and united labor action in a generation. CTU President Karen Lewis says teachers are fighting for public education in Chicago. We will not be submissive. We will stand up. Wisconsin's April 5th presidential primary is in the national spotlight as both Democratic candidates express support for organized labor. Bernie Sanders electrified a Madison rally. Our brothers and sisters in the trade union movement, we owe them a whole lot for helping to create a 40-hour work week and helping to create the middle class of Wisconsin. Hillary Clinton told the Machinists Union she will fight for workers' union rights as president. We're going to get new laws to make sure that your organizing and collective bargaining is respected again. 
in a very big win for workers in the Fight for 15 movement, California labor unions, state lawmakers, and Governor Jerry Brown will raise California's statewide minimum wage to $15 an hour. Guadalupe Salazar is a California McDonald's worker. This is a huge victory. I feel very proud because now the rest of the nation is looking on us and they're seeing that this simple hour is a tribute. We can do it. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Workers Independent News Week in Review. I'm Doug Cunningham. Wisconsin billionaire, Koch brother ally, and Scott Walker political. Looks like we're going to get the same thing again. So, yeah, pretty much pretty much the same um, stories that we covered. Uh, the fight for 15. And uh, Chicago teachers. Um, the point about the Fredericks, uh, the bill, the suit has been dismissed because, well, because of the de- death of uh, Scalia. I still think that we need uh, uh, evangelical leftists to claim that uh, Scalia was taken from us by God so he couldn't do any more harm to all these Milbray and San harm Carlos. to workers let's see what's on here chronicles and green call bulletins not even enough time to be disdainful they've got to catch 130 132 134 136 all the way up to 146 till the time of evening supper in homes of the railroad earth when high in the sky, the magic stars ride above the following hotshot freight trains. It's all in California. It's all a sea. I swim out of it in afternoons of sun-hot meditation in my jeans with head on handkerchief on Brakeman's lantern or, if not working, on book. I look up at blue sky of perfect lost purity and feel the warp of wood of old America beneath me. And I have insane conversations with Negroes in second-story windows above and everything is pouring in. That was a piece from Jack Kerouac's October in the Real World Earth. Here's the World Labor Report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 1st, 2016. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, the UN's International Labor Organization gives Qatar 12 months to stop using slave labor. Chinese workers increase their strikes and protests. Unions demand the release of a jailed labor leader in South Korea. And South Africa's Kosatu confronts technological change. This is Radio Labor. The International Labor Organization has given the Gulf state of Qatar 
12 months to reform its labor laws or face the prospect of a commission of inquiry into the country's use of slave-like labor. The ILO is the UN agency focused on matters of work in the world. Qatar is preparing for the 2022 World Cup of Football. Millions of migrant construction workers are in the country building the facilities for the games. The decision to start action against Qatar was taken by representatives of governments, employer groups, and unions working at the ILO. In the 97-year history of the organization, a commission of inquiry has only been invoked 13 times. Union activities at the ILO are coordinated by the International Trade Union Confederation because the ITUC represents national labor centers at the world level. Sharon Burrell is the ITUC's general secretary. She told the media that the ILO ruling should force Qatar into real action on how migrants are treated instead of public relations hype. She described the situation in Qatar. We've been fighting against countries like Qatar, where workers are owned by another individual in 2014. They are dependent on an employer for a contract that they have no control over. They're forced to pay illegal fees often when they leave their countries. They end up in destinations like Qatar, where they see their contracts torn up. They're forced to live in squalor. They work extraordinary long hours in oppressive conditions in the heat, often with no water, on very poor quality food. And then when it all gets too much and they uh, want to leave, they find themselves trapped in Qatar because the same individual owns their exit visa. It's not acceptable. There are an increasing number of strikes and protests in China, and there will be even more as the country shuts down antiquated steel factories and coal processing plants. Radio Labor's senior correspondent Seamary Ainsborough has a report. In China, workers are becoming more militant as they fight for better wages, decent benefits, and job security. The respected NGO, China Labor Bulletin, reports that there were about 3,000 strikes in the country in 2015. That's more than double the number of strikes in the year before. In 2014, there were about 1,200 strikes. The pattern of increased strike action is holding true for this year. While there are strikes throughout the country, a large number of the actions are centered in Guangdong province, where many multinational corporations have production facilities. According to the China Labor Bulletin, the strikes are being caused by issues such as slow or non-payment of wages, unpaid benefits, and inadequately funded pension plans. Another factor provoking unrest is the failure of local government officials to enforce labor laws. Most of the strikes go unreported in the country, so news about worker action is usually available only from human rights groups. Some of the strikes, however, are too large to ignore. One of those strikes was the September 2014 walkout of more than 10,000 workers at a supplier for the technology giant, Apple. Complicating the situation even more is that the workers feel they are not being adequately represented by the official labor organization in the country. The All-China Federation of Trade Unions is essentially a branch of the government and often sides with the employers. China does not allow independent labor unions to be formed. While there are some links between the ACFTU and labor organizations outside the country, the ACFTU is not a member of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the body which represents free and independent national labor centers such as the AFL-CIO in the United States and the Trades Union Congress in Ghana. ACFTU is, however, represented at the UN's International Labor Organization, 
which is a tripartite body made up of governments, employer groups, and labor unions. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. Labor unions around the world are intensifying their campaign to have the president of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions released from prison. Han Sung-gun was imprisoned last November after he led thousands of people in a protest against a new labor law in the country. The legislation would make it easier to strip job security from workers and fire them. Mr. Han is one of at least 16 unionists who are being held in detention. More than 400 labor activists have been brought to police stations to be intimidated and warned against participation in further actions. The Global Union Federation Industrial estimates that the police have been investigating more than 1,000 unionists. Industrial represents a wide range of unions operating in sectors from manufacturing to mining to garment production. Kemal Ozkan is an assistant general secretary of Industrial. He recently led a delegation of unionists to Korea, which included representatives from the Swedish union IF Metal, the German labor federation EG Metall, and the United Steelworkers of the United States. They demanded the immediate release of Hang Shang Gun. Here's Mr. Ozkan. We are in Seoul, just in front of the detention center. An industrial global union delegation visited the imprisoned president of KCTU, President Han. Industrial global union and its main affiliates delivered the message to him on behalf of 50 million members of the organization. And this solidarity is going to be here always. The struggle of South Korean union movement is the struggle of international trade union movement. From the National uh, Swedish Union, I have metal. We would forward our greetings and our support to the Korean trade union movement. And we share your struggle and we will do whatever we can to support you in solidarity. The same message goes from IG Metall with more than 2.3 million workers. And we are really afraid of the situation of uh, workers here in South Korea and the democratic development in this country. Solidarity. From the United Steelworkers, we send our solidarity for the jail trade unionists in Korea. An injury to one is an injury to all. In South Africa, workers are growing increasingly concerned about the effect of technological change on their jobs. And so the Congress of South African Trade Unions, COSATU, is studying how workers can develop their skills to meet the changing patterns of employment in the country. COSATU represents some two million workers. Becky Ninshali Ninshali is Kusato's general secretary. He was asked how technological change is affecting workers in South Africa and what can be done. South Africa is part of the global world. Uh, changes are affecting South Africa. The technological advancement is moving very, very fast. So like any other countries in the world, we're facing the same challenges, but our intake is that the world of work has been changing all the time and I think we need just to adjust and be able to get the required skills so that we can be able to cope and we don't believe that the technology is going to replace human beings. The question of the technology and the labor intensive is going to live side by side for many years to come. challenge we have I think in our case for the trade union 
is to get the skills of the, or the workforce to get the capable skills so that they can be able to adapt, but also to have a better understanding in terms of what are the requirements and how we, we can adjust to this particular situation. Now here is the Canadian rapper Michael Roos with Solidarity. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we got an eight-hour workday This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la-di-da-di Unions fought hard for your right to party they're out there to ease your tension With decent wages, health care, and pensions Now it's like unions blame for bad weather But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever I want to shout it on high and get it off my chest The story here is fighting for those who have less So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war Think what they've done, where they stand, who they fight for And that's it, international labor news you can use Follow us on Twitter, at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. The uh, Radio Labor report about uh, labor campaigns all around the world. And as we say, you're only alone when you don't stand up and be counted. And if you don't stand up They'll say you stood up for sitting down. The ultimate indictment of globalization, of worldwide market economy, of corporations and big business under a capitalist system is child labor. Child labor, 200 million or so children go to work each day, a lot of them in slave-like conditions. Um, this is a radio labor report about children mining gold in the Philippines. Listen up. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. The respected NGO Human Rights Watch has released a report condemning the use of child labor for gold mining in the Philippines. Radio Labor senior correspondent Seamarie Ainsborough has a report. There are about 18,000 children working as miners in the Philippines. Many of them are used in underwater mines because they can fit into the narrow boxes that lead through the water to the gold-containing silt at the bottom. On the surface, other children sift through the sediment brought up through the shaft. With their hands, they create an amalgam, a mixture of poisonous mercury and silt, to find gold particles. Carlos Conde is a researcher with Human Rights Watch. Thousands of children across the Philippines are engaged in small-scale gold mining. This type of work exposes these children to all sorts of danger. Many of them work underground, many of them work underwater, and many of them handle toxic substances. Because much of the gold deposits in the Philippines are below the water table, a unique process that is called compressor mining has evolved. 
This involves the use of compressors on the surface where a tube is attached and through this tube the miners would breathe. Most of the compressor miners are men, but some of them are children. Compressor miners may spend up to three hours as deep as 10 meters digging ore. Somebody from the surface would bring up the ores in sacks and give these to the other miners on the surface who would then eventually pan for gold. There have been instances when compressor miners drowned, and there have also been instances when uh, the compressor itself stopped working, thus depriving the miners below oxygen. Compressor miners are also at risk of decompression sickness, and many miners are vulnerable to skin diseases from the bacteria underwater. It's not only the children who work underwater who are in danger. As Mr. Conde points out, the children on the surface are being poisoned by the panning that they do. Besides the obvious risk of accidents, there is a more hidden secret danger of mining, which is the use of mercury. Mercury is a toxic liquid metal that attracts gold particles and separates it from the sand and other elements, forming an amalgam. When this amalgam is burned using a blowtorch, the mercury evaporates into poisonous gas, leaving behind raw gold. Mercury attacks the central nervous system and can cause lifelong disability, including brain damage and even death. It is particularly harmful to children whose systems are still developing. In the mining village of Malaya, we observe light gray mercury from whole ore processing plants flowing directly into the river where children play. A major impediment in helping the children, says Mr. Conde, is lack of action by the government. In March of this year, the government banned underwater mining and the use of mercury in small-scale mining. The government also bans the worst forms of child labor, but turns a blind eye to enforcing the law. At the root of child labor in the Philippines, as in many other countries, is the struggle for economic survival. Mr. Conde. Child labor is a product of poverty. Therefore, the government should provide poor, vulnerable families with support to enable them to send their children to school. The government should ratify the Minamata Convention on Mercury, and it should also introduce mercury-free gold processing methods. In the long term, it needs to create a legalized, regulated, child labor-free mining sector that helps rural families survive. This is Simarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. Radio Labor's report about <clears throat> child labor in the Philippines. Child labor, of course, is everywhere uh, because children uh, work cheap. They're easy to bully. Uh, they don't make as many demands. It's hard for them to organize. Uh, and uh, they make you a lot of money. We look around and we see that uh, things and places and people that don't make money for someone else are just passed over. This is the problem with the market economy. If a, a thing like the city of Detroit or the city of Flint 
is what's left over after capitalism passes through and exploits everything that it can, makes all the money it can, then moves on. Sorry, we can't make cars here anymore. You're going to all lose your jobs. <clears throat> the Nestle Corporation, uh, Oreo Cookies, just moved, proposed to move their operation to Mexico. 600 workers lose, lose their work. Uh, anyway, let's get on with Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez <clears throat> worked in the fields of California and began to understand that by working in the fields, he couldn't necessarily help his people and himself. Uh, they would have to organize, and first he worked for the uh, a Quaker organization, the developed by Saul Alinsky, the CSO, the uh, Community Services Organization. Actually, worked in Oakland, uh, registering people to vote. About the same time, a young woman named Dolores Huerta, who was a teacher in Stockton decided that the way to help her people, these kids who were coming to school barefoot, who were like outcasts, who spoke Spanish, and uh, they showed up at the school. The best way to help them was to organize a labor union for their parents. So here's Corrido de Cesar Chavez. And I'm going to follow that up with um, Facundo Cabral, No soy de aquí ni soy de allá. I'm not neither from here or from there. This is the the, uh, Chicano's challenge, you know. If I go to Mexico, they don't they treat me like a stranger there. And here I'm treated like a stranger by the dominant culture. So let's listen to this Corrido de Cesar Chavez. We're talking now 1965. U.S. Guerrero. Corrido de Cesar Chavez, the ballad of Cesar Chavez. de mi gente protector del campesino eres un gran mexicano ese sería tu destino de muy humildes principios organizaste a la gente y a los Hay unas de 
Okay, um, that was Lalo Guerrero celebrating uh, Cesar Chavez and how he organized among his people to found the UFW. Um, Chavez is unique among labor leaders because he combined a civil rights movement with a labor movement, uh, which caused... Uh, typical civil uh, labor leader like George Meany to say that Chavez wasn't a labor leader at all. Frank Fitzsimmons, pardon me, of the Teamsters, that Chavez wasn't a labor leader at all. Uh, here Cesar Chavez explains the boycott and how you can use it to get people not to buy grapes. Accepted. My experience, voting doesn't really help the poor people. The people who really need help from the poor, they don't get help from, the, from their vote. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't vote. I still vote. But look at it, really look at it. Most things that are done through legislatures are concerned about the vast majority of people which happen to the middle class and higher. Oh, there's a lot of talk, but really solutions don't come there. And we learn that we'll continue to vote and get people to vote, but really, really, there's another place we can vote and be extremely successful, and that's the marketplace. You see, one of the great issues in our country is that the Americans, the American public, you and I included, we want things fast. We want things to happen without too much work. That's why instant coffee is so popular. And it doesn't work that way. In real life, it doesn't work that way. Meaningful change takes a lot of struggle, a lot of time, a lot of dedication. That's what happens. Look at the struggles that really mean, have really done something in this, in this world. Look how long it takes them. It doesn't happen by rhetoric, especially through rhetoric. It doesn't happen. It happens when people get out there, roll up their sleeves, and actually get the work done. And so, we said, why go to the politicians? Why not, why not go directly and go to the marketplace where you can put direct pressure on those corporations that can find a solution for you? That, we recommend that. that we, long, we live long enough to know that 
it works. You see, we hear that, the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows. Boycotts make stranger bedfellows still. Because we live in a very capitalistic society, because of that, the boycotts are even better than work. It's easier to work here. We start boycotting grapes. The brokers are constantly trying to get the growers to let them buy the grapes on consignment. Ship them to me when they get to Boston, to New York. I'll pay you the growing rate and I'll pay you 60 or 90 days later. And the growers said, no, I want it for me. Pay me. If I ship you a car lot, pay me right now. And that argument is going all the time. The brokers don't really want us. They don't like us. When we start boycotting, they're very quickly to use the boycott as a leverage against the growers to get the growers to sell them the grapes and consignment because they'll make more money. And when that happens, the growers have lost something and that's happening already because of our boycott. We've been at growers' offices when they get a call from, from a buyer in New York and he tells the grower, oh, I cannot, I can't buy your grapes, I can't pay a penny from their own sale. These farm workers are picketing everywhere in New York. They've got thousands of pickets. We had about 40 pickets to tell the grower, we can't buy the grapes. That's how it works. Because at the other end, the supermarkets want to get the grapes as cheap as they can to sell them. The brokers do too. And we don't mind at that point that they get them as cheap as they can because they'll help us. And you see also the consumers buy fruits in this order. Bananas first, apples second, oranges third, and grapes fourth. And they're all interrelated. Look at what happens when the price of grapes go down because of the boycott. Bananas and apples and oranges also come down because they don't want to lose the customers. And so the grower, after the boycott starts and the grower begins to lower the, the grocery store lowers the price of grapes because they're getting grapes cheaper as a lead. It doesn't last long because then the bananas come and the grapes and the oranges and the apples, they also run their prices down because they don't want to lose the customers to cheap grapes. And it works. It's not a very scientific fact. This is how things work. And so we can learn a lot from Dr. King and from Gandhi. You know, when, on, the, when the bus boycott, there was no way in the world that those blacks could have ever won it politically. They couldn't. Politically, they didn't have any power. And they came up with the idea of the boycott. And the boycott began to work. The boycott is tremendous, tremendous leverage. The boycott is an idea, I don't think it's line will leave, it's an idea that spreads. Pardon the expression, it spreads through the grapevine. But it does spread, we don't know how it happens. The definitive study of the boycott has never been made. And we're waiting for somebody in one years like you to come and do the definitive study, find exactly what happens in the boycott. We've been boycotting for 29 years, and we know from experience we can tell when boycotts are working, what stage, those things, but only from intuition, only from experience, but not really because of facts. The boycotts are Gandhi's boycotts, 
some were tremendous voices, some were strokes of geniuses. And they buried the whole country without war. We just missed it because people were, there wasn't a shooting war, so that's not important. But we should reflect on those instances when things were done without a shooting war. Those are important things to reflect on, understand, and appreciate, and try to replicate. The other thing podcast is that it saves you the consumer money. The important thing is, you see, we've been around, we travel more extensively than any presidential candidate in this country. We've been doing it for 42 years. They only do it for four, for two seasons at the most, right? We've gone up and down, just up and down, everywhere. And we think we have a good idea of the American consumer. We know that the American consumer wants fairness. We know that. Whatever they say, whatever they do, yet in their heart, they want to be fair. We want to be fair in this country. That's kind of the idea. But we also want to be told what to do because, you see, in most cases, we're never told what to do. It's very difficult to come and join a struggle because there's no clear-cut, immediate thing you can do. In our case, we learned that. It would make it very simple for you. Just boycott anything that looks like great. You don't have to go to meetings, to rallies, even spend money, even take, even not miss a step from your, your, your schedule and still be helpful. Isn't that great? That's how it works. And, it, and then be patient because it works. And we got these guys on the run. It's going to work again. It's worked for us many times. We beat them twice, and we'll beat them again the third time because now we have three generations of great boycotters in the United States. Boycotting greats is now Americana. Okay, that was uh, Cesar Chavez explaining boycotts. In other words... uh, the only place, the, the voting booth is not the only place you can vote. Every day when you go out and uh, shop, you're making choices. Um, so Chavez is explaining that. Here's uh, Dolores Huerta. And next week we'll go into much more into the UFW as I wanted to this week before we had our uh, technical problems. This is Dolores Huerta talking about the labor movement. A person that really believed in culture. Early on, I was a Girl Scout from the time I was eight to the time I was 18 years old, very active in Girl Scouts. As a teenager, I belonged to the church choir. I was uh, involved in dancing, uh, both folklorico, flamenco, Uh, tap and ballet. I took music lessons, both violin and piano. The only negative thing about my my teenage years, and especially in high school, was the racism that we had to endure uh, because we were Mexican-Americans and because our 
our, our group that we all hung out with, there was all the, the Asians, the Filipinos, the black kids, and the police were always giving us a hard time. So we faced that on the streets with the police, and then in, in our high school, uh, the racism against the, uh, not only the kids of color, but also the poor white kids was very severe. I was working here in Los Angeles uh, with the community service organization. Uh, Cesar was the director, and I was the executive secretary. And it was actually here in East Los Angeles when we decided to start the Farm Workers Union. It was at Cesar's house there, where he was living there on Folsom Street. And he called me over to his house one morning, and he said, you know, the farm workers will never have a union unless you and I do it. And uh, I thought he was joking. He said, no, I'm serious. Uh, I was lucky enough to be the political director for the organization, uh, and we had all of these chapters throughout the state. Uh, we got uh, driver's licenses in Spanish and other ethnic languages, and we got the ballots in the Spanish language, and uh, the disability insurance for farm workers, and then we passed uh, a, a law that you could register a voters door to door, and so we were able to pass a, a very important law uh, to take away the requirement that you had to be a U.S. citizen to get public assistance. One of the things that we are working on is number one, bringing to the attention of the American public what the contributions of immigrants are because they don't realize how much people do. The work that they do, picking our food, we remind people the food that you ate today, some immigrant picked that food, probably an undocumented person. We have to legalize the people that are already here because they have earned it with their work and with their tax dollars that they have paid and their contributions that they have made to our economy. That was uh, Dolores Huerta talking about La Lucha is not over. Um, this week I had planned to cover the farm workers um, much better and play some uh, music of, of uh, the farm worker movement. But we had our uh, problems. Um technical problems so next week we'll be able to fill up pick up on a lot of stuff including attacks on Cesar Chavez uh, because of some of his tactics and attacks on Dolores Huerta for supporting Bernie uh, supporting Hillary Clinton um and, and we'll talk about some of that stuff. The, the problem is uh, a common one in the labor movement, the one according to the one that uh, relates to Chavez. A common one in the labor movement when you realize that 
you have to make a deal with the devil sometime. The instance in which Chavez would and the union members would report illegal Mexican workers coming to the U.S. and being used as strike breakers. Uh, a moment similar to the one that James R. Hoffa and people of his ilk faced when they saw that time and time again the the owners, the bosses, were hiring goons. So how do you win in a situation like that? You Do you have to touch the devil? I mean, that's that's kind of a similar problem. Anyway, this is the bee signing off. It's labor and love. And uh, another week is down. We'll see you on... Uh, April the 9th, after the birthday of my uh, soulmate, Sylvia Ramirez. This is shout out to the whole family, all my people. Uh, nice to see you yesterday, Vita, and uh, your boyfriend. I guess we can call him that by now. Um, this is Kaori Miraji with the Internacional. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor... I mean you. Bye-bye. Good week and good, good work.
Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives to smoke it. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast God, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and muniradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com 
for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen, graphic design for every need, and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, oh, From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of... 
Hey people, this is a mutinyradio.fm. We're listening to Flat Black Plastic. This is for the folks who went to go see that seven year old guy. <laughs> <laughs> 